As we begin our Bible reading in Genesis chapter 18 and verse 16, we find ourselves in a setting where God comes to visit Abraham. And Abraham sees these three men coming by and he uh, offers to give them something to eat and to put them up. And, and God re- begins to reveal to him uh, that they're going to have a child within the next year. And then God is going to go from there down to the city of Sodom because he's heard a great cry out against Sodom. And uh, we'll find the judgment of Sodom as well. But it's during that conversation that it says, Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom, and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation? And all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Lisa's often stated that she would much rather have a male doctor than a female doctor for the main reason that uh, women tend to multitask. She'd like to know that when her doctor's looking into something as important as her health, that his mind is not on uh, the evening meal or what what she's going to make for dinner or or the laundry situation at the home or something going on with the kids. And and men seem to be more singly focused. And, And I would tend to agree with her on that. When I, just from my own experience, and, and I look at her, one of the things that's phenomenal to me is when I watch her, for example, make a meal. You know, when she cooks dinner, she's got so many different items that are cooking at different times, and some have to start at different times so that they can all end up hot and on the plate at the same time when it's time to eat. Uh, every year at Mother's Day, when, I, when the task goes to me to make the entire meal, I don't know how she does it. Uh, it's just, uh, it's outside of my pay grade. I usually do the grilling around our house. So, so if we're uh, grilling, which we do quite a bit of, uh, I get to I get to do the grilling outside. But even that, she has prepared ahead of time, and she's got the other things. And she tells me when it's time to start to get the things on the grill, so that everything's done at about the right time. And every once in a while, I try to multitask a little bit. I'll be out there at the grill cooking some chicken or something, and and I'll think of something in the garage that needs to be done. And so I'll go into the garage and start a to tink with something, and and then all of a sudden I'm like, oh no, the chicken, (laughs) I just completely forgot about it. And so uh, hopefully I haven't burned it too bad. And and so I can see what she's talking about there. Well, the reason I bring that up is today as we look at this passage, we're going to consider this idea of multitasking. But for this, we're not really looking at the difference between men and women uh, who we're looking at as God, as we look at God as a multitasker. And the reason I'd say that is because he's kind of doing two different things at once. In fact, as we get a little farther into the passage, we're going to see that the New Testament looks back at this time period and recognizes that God will be accomplishing two different things at the same time. And so that's what we want to consider this morning. So we want to look at the different tasks that God is able to accomplish at the same time. The ability to do more than one thing at a time, I think of... My dad. My dad often refers to it as being able to walk and chew gum. In other words, you can accomplish more than one thing at a time. And uh, that's what we're looking at this morning is, is God's ability to handle difficult situations doing a couple different things all at the same time. So as we consider God as a multitasker, the first task that we see him involved in is a task of grace. Now he's going to exercise his grace towards several different people. 
The first one that we see him exercising his grace toward is obviously to Abraham. Remember, this is a covenant of grace whereby God is entering into his life and making a covenant with him, a covenant of blessing, a covenant of his grace upon the life of Abram. The point that we're at in Abraham's life is that God is coming to see Abraham, and it's with good news. Remember, Abraham was told when he was about 75 years old that he was given the first promise of this son that would come. And Abraham had a little glitch about halfway through the 25 years or so, and they tried to take matters into their own hands and and accomplish it themselves, and that uh, resulted in Ishmael. Now when God comes before Abraham, it's with good news that within a year, or in about a year's time, that they would give birth to Isaac. Now, it's almost laughable. In fact, that's exactly what the reaction of Abraham and Sarah was. When Abraham was told, he laughed. And then he even told God, just bless Ishmael. If you look back into chapter 17, and God said, no, Ishmael's not the child of promise. Isaac will be born to Sarah. And when Sarah was told, then she laughed in her tent and and, and Thought it was in me as, as good as dead. And when it comes to childbearing, will I provide a son? Will I nurse? And so she laughed. And, and God said, well, why did Sarah laugh? And, of course, Sarah denied it. She said, well, I didn't laugh. And God's not really the kind of person to play that game with because uh, he knows. But, and, that's, you know, that's exactly the reason. God wanted to fulfill this promise with Abraham and Sarah when it was laughable. He wanted to do it when it was... Uh, no longer humanly possible. When the New Testament looks back on it and, and talks about them being as good as dead when it comes to childbearing. Uh, when it could not be confused with them being able to accomplishing it in their own ability. And then God acts. It proves that it was an act of grace by God and not just human accomplishment. So Abram is blessed with this grace. But not only is God offering grace to Abraham through this, but by extension to the world. In fact, that goes all the way down to us. This is an offering of grace to us, an act of grace toward us, because it's through Abraham that God is going to bless the world. And so as we consider that, we see God's grace being carried out toward Abraham. We also see God's grace being carried out toward Hagar and Ishmael. Abraham says, "Let just bless Ishmael. God says, no. Ishmael is not to be the child of promise. Isaac will be the child of promise. But you know what? God shows a soft spot for Hagar and Ishmael on a number of different occasions, and he confirms his promise with them that he will also turn Ishmael into a great nation also. So God exercises grace toward the servant Hagar and her child with Abraham, Ishmael, as well. But then we also see within the passage, we see God exercising his grace toward Sodom. Toward Sodom. Now, and he's going to end up judging Sodom because of their wickedness and their lack of repentance. But this is how the story unfolds until we get to there. What happens is Abraham is told that God's going to go down and judge Sodom. And Abraham, you know, Lot's there. And, you know, Lot's always a questionable character. You never know quite what to do with him. The New Testament points back at Lot and says he was a righteous man and it vexed his righteous soul the things that he both saw and heard in that wicked city of Sodom. If you remember from back in about chapter 13, um, it identified the men of Sodom as being exceedingly wicked people. But So then why do we find if Lot is such a righteous person, at the same time it begs the question, why is he, what is he doing there? He sets his face towards Sodom when Abraham lets him pick the land in chapter 13. 
He ends up moving into Sodom, we see in chapter 14. And by the time we get to chapter 19 here, he's sitting at the city gate, which means he's kind of considered one of the city fathers, probably judging between the people. Ironically, when you end up looking at what happens when the men of Sodom want to do this disgusting acts with the men that came to visit Lot, and Lot corrects them on that, and they say, who made you a judge over us? You came in a stranger. And so it appears that he's been able to judge between them on different occasions or different things, but when he confronted their sin, and people are protective of their sin, when he confronted their sin, they reminded him that he's a stranger. But what happens in the meantime is Abraham comes to God and he says, will you destroy the righteous with the wicked? What if there's 50 people, 50 righteous people there? And God says, okay, for the, for the 50 righteous people, I won't destroy the city. I'll save the city. And then Abraham says, well, don't get mad at me, but what if I, what if I ask for 45? What about 45? And he continues to dicker with God, kind of down, 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 all the way down to 10. What if there's 10 righteous people there? Will you destroy the, the righteous with the wicked if there's, or will you save the city if there's 10 righteous people? And God says, okay, I'll save the city with 10 righteous people. You see, what an act of grace. you got a city that's known as exceedingly wicked. And God says, if there's just ten righteous people there, I'll spare the city. You know, it reminds me of Jeremiah chapter 5. In Jeremiah 5, he's looking through Jerusalem. And it says, run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. Look and take note. Search her squares to see if you can find a man who does, a one who does justice and seeks truth then I may pardon her. You see what God's saying there through the prophet Jeremiah? He says, you go look all over Jerusalem, and if you can find just one, just one righteous man in that city, I'll spare the whole city. Boy, that is a gracious God. You know, it gives me hope for our country. Our country, I, think, I believe, is a long way from that. We've got a lot of people that love and honor and serve God within our country. You know, at the same time, we look at our country and we think we've fallen uh, quite a bit from where we started in uh, the purposes and the ideals of our country. And we allow things within our country that, that we didn't uh, allow before or things happen within our country and are overlooked that would have never happened before. But you know what? God says, for the sake of the ten, I'll spare the whole city. With Jerusalem, for the sake of one person, I would spare the whole city. You see, God is a very gracious, a very gracious God. But then not only do we see his grace exercised toward Sodom, we also see it exercised toward Lot. Because Lot is, Lot is in that city. Now, as we mentioned, the New Testament refers to him as a righteous person. But what does God do? God goes into there and he rescues Lot from out of that wicked city. He tells him to get his wife and his daughters and their husbands. And, of course, their, their husbands think that uh, Lot's crazy. And so they don't listen. They want to stay behind in Sodom. Uh, probably gives us a little insight into their character. So Lot and his daughters and his wife all leave. And so we see God's grace being exercised towards Lot and his family. That's exactly the event in the New Testament where God says, See, I know how to rescue the righteous and judge the wicked at the same time. And that's what we're considering is God as a multitasker. So the first task that we see God involved in is a task of grace. The second task that we see God involved in is a task of judgment. At the same time that God is exercising grace toward Abraham, grace toward Ishmael and Hagar, 
grace toward Sodom, grace toward Lot. He also is exercising judgment. He's going to judge Sodom and Gomorrah. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4-10, through 10, it tells us how to interpret this passage. It says, For if God did not spare the angels, now it's going to cover more than the passage that we're looking at. It's going to give three different examples. The angels, during the time when they left their natural habitation back in Genesis 6. The ancient world, which was destroyed with the flood during Noah's time. And then Sodom and Gomorrah in the time of Lot. Now it says, For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and condemned them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah the herald of righteousness and seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. So you see in that passage, I know it's a lengthy passage, but the structure of the logic is clear. It's a if, then. If this, then this. Notice it says, if God did not spare the angels. Again, if he did not spare the ancient world. If he turned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes. And, here's the positive one, those three are all negative. If He rescued righteous Lot. Then, in verse 9, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment till the day of judgment. You see, it's that multitasking God. If he destroyed the angels, if he destroyed the world but rescued Noah, if he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah but rescued Lot, then that all proves God can rescue the godly from trials and keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. So God can act in both grace and judgment at the same time. So some would ask, is God a God of judgment or a God of grace? And the answer is, yes, he is. He is a God of judgment and a God of grace. In fact, he says in this passage that in verse 6, that he did that with Sodom and Gomorrah, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. So these are not just limited exercises of God's judgment. They serve as an example to all those who would not believe and who would go against the principles and the commands of God to see what is coming for them as well. Jude also says the same thing in verse 7. He says, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality, and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. You know, all through the Bible, Sodom and Gomorrah is used many times as examples. In Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 9, it says, If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. So Isaiah, when he's correcting the people of his time, he uses Sodom and Gomorrah as an example to sway his listeners. 
In the very next verse, in verse 10, says, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. So he identifies the people, which were Israelites. They were God's chosen people, but he calls them Sodom and Gomorrah to make a comparison between them. What exactly was the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, some have argued that it really wasn't about homosexuality. When you look at the story as it unfolds, the three men come to visit Lot, and the men of the city gather around Lot's house, demanding to know them in a sexual sense. And so it would be a homosexual act and one that's not of consent. People often point that out, and, and rightly so in this instance. Some, to try to veer it away from the comparison between Sodom and the act of homosexuality, which throughout history the act of homosexuality has sometimes been called sodomy and referred to in just that way. Well, some have uh, pointed to Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 16 and verse 49 says, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease but did not aid the poor and the needy. And so it, it points to the sin of Sodom as being that of an excess of pride. In fact, if you look at it just from face value there, it looks like they were arrogant people that didn't share their stuff, even though they had a lot of it. And so that is often how it is portrayed. But it is actually so much more than that. You see, it's not really a question. It's not really a question of, well, was the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, was it homosexuality and, and other perversions, or was it pride? It's not really an either-or kind of a thing. It's actually a both-and. One and the other are connected in this sense. As we look at the passages in the New Testament that reveal the truth of it, as we already did in Second Peter chapter 2 and verse 4 through 10, when it was talking about the destruction of these people, it says that God knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. The lust of defiling passion would be referring to those homosexual acts. And then also in Jude, it does the same thing. It says, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. That's often the way that the Bible refers to homosexual acts as unnatural desire. Serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Well, then why would God say that their sin was pride in the book of Ezekiel? It's, it's not an either or. It's a both and. You see, one leads to the other. In our arrogance, we say, God, we don't care what your intention for sexuality is. God, we don't care what your intention for marriage is. We're going to do what we want. We're going to follow our own passions. That's pride. Is one leads to the other. We say, God, we don't care what you think about our entertainment industry and what we, the things that we enjoy as movies and the things that we're going to listen to. God, we don't care about what you say about drugs and alcohol. God, we don't care about, God, this is my life and I'm going to live it how I want. You see, that's arrogance. That's pride that leads to sin. Every time that you sin, you're exhibiting a pride. You're expressing an arrogance toward God that I'm going to do what I want regardless of what you design things to be like or how you've commanded me to live. 
is pride. And so it's not like you have to choose between one or the other. One is a kind of the source from under coming up from within, and the other is the expression of it on the surface. Consider what it says in Isaiah chapter 3 and verse 9. For the look on their faces bears witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. And so you see the point that he's making is, what did Sodom do? Sodom was prideful. They were arrogant. And because of their pride, they did not shame or shy away from their sin. They didn't repent of it, clearly. And not only that, they magnified, they glorified themselves in their sin. And that was an expression of their pride, their rebellion against God. And we see some similarities around it in our nations and the city, cities within our nation today as we consider all the so-called pride parades and, and things like that where, where people have, have cast off the, the truth of God's Word and are expressing themselves in these sinful ways. And not quietly or, or not to themselves. It's, what are the expressions that we hear? These, these pride parades where they're parading it through town. And, you know, to be honest with you, no matter what kind of parade it is in, in that sense, if, if your whole identity is wrapped up in a, in a sexuality, that, that alone is disturbing. But as we consider this, they're, they're parading it around. They're magnifying things that we should, that should be ashamed of. What are the other ways that they express it as coming out of the closet? And you look at, uh, a lot of the thought in our nation, or maybe I should say at least some of the thought in our nation is that these people are almost looked at as heroes for doing such a thing. They're looked at as, as heroes for something that in the past they would have been cons- it was considered shameful and by the standards of God's word is yet considered shameful. This is incredibly important for at least two reasons. One is because of the glory of God. The glory of God is magnified when we do things according to God's will and his purpose, when we follow his plan. The glory of God is diminished and, and tarnished when we leave his design and we leave his purpose for our lives. The glory of God is always magnified in obedience and never in rebellion. But secondly, for the souls of the individuals involved in these sins. The truth needs to be clear because it's a guideline for our life and it shows us when we are at risk. When we in our pride live outside of God's boundaries, our souls are in jeopardy. Just as God desired to extend grace into Sodom, and just as He would have saved the city of Sodom just for ten righteous people, God's truth needs to be clear if people are going to experience His grace in their lives. You know, it's kind of like in, when you look at Romans chapter 1 and, and you deal with the same the sin of homosexuality and it also deals with the sin of idolatry. And some people will look at Romans 1 and say, well, it's not really dealing with homosexuality. It doesn't apply to homosexuality. It applies to idolatry. And they say that because the context starts out with idolatry. It says in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 23, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. 
So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So you see, as we look at the beginning of the context there, it is talking about idolatry. They exchanged the image of God for the creation. They made images of animals and beasts and creeping things, and they worshipped those things. And so they practiced idolatry. But then the very next verse says, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forevermore. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. That's homosexuality. And so the point is, some people will say, well, what is the sin that's going on here? Is it homosexuality or is it idolatry? And the answer is yes. It's both. It's not, again, either or. It's both and. The idolatry led to the homosexuality. It was an expression of them casting off God and casting off recognizing the image of the glory of God within themselves. And so then they violated God's principles. And so God gave them up and they violated God's principles some more. And the fact of the matter is, if you're a religious person and you're practicing homosexuality, you are not worshiping the God of the Bible. And therefore, you are practicing idolatry. You're fulfilling Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and following. You see, they were committing idolatry and homosexuality. The city of Sodom, in their pride, was casting off their restraint and following unnatural passions. And so when we find in the book of Romans, the very last verse of that passage, as he goes on to list other sins that are included also, not just homosexuality, but it says in Romans 1.32, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So you see, God is exercising His judgment upon Sodom for their wickedness. At the same time that He's extending grace even to Sodom, He extends grace to Lot, He extends grace to Hagar and Ishmael, and above all, He extends grace to Abraham and Sarah through the birth of their son Isaac. And so we see both things coming together. And you know where both things come together? Both of these things really come together in the cross. Because we see the grace of God and the judgment of God intersecting at the cross of Jesus Christ. Because you see, Jesus Christ went to that cross to take the judgment of God upon Himself so that the grace of God can be extended to us. And that's where we see those two principles come together. God is a multitasker. He does sit in judgment on sin. He knows how to judge the wicked. But God is also a God of grace 
who offers grace and extends grace in the most amazing circumstances. He reaches down into your sinful life and my sinful life and He offers grace. He offers redemption. He offers forgiveness. He offers the power to overcome that sin that controls us. And He does it through the cross of His Son. All kind of ends up hinging on a response. We see what the men of Sodom did in response to God's grace. We see Lot delivered out of Sodom because of his faith in God's grace. We see Abraham blessed with the grace of God poured onto him and his family and by extension of him on out into the world because of his faith as he trusted in God's grace. What about you today? What about me? Will we trust like Abraham and receive the grace of God into our lives? Or will we be like the men of Sodom and reject it to our own peril?